Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello and welcome to Politico's 2016 Nerdcast, where we bring you the stories behind the stories and geek out on this amazing circus of an election. It's Thursday, June 16th, and I'm Kristen Roberts, national editor. The primaries are over. Donald Trump is using a teleprompter, but he's still not on any script approved by anyone in the Republican Party. Here are the numbers that mattered this week. Three, the number of donors Donald Trump called after promising he'd dial up 20. Five, that's how many points Clinton had over Trump in Politico's battleground state polling average. 10 million, or should I say at least 10 million. That's how much Clinton is spending on ads in the battleground states. And 11. That's where libertarian Gary Johnson is polling nationwide. Grab your calculators and enjoy the 2016 Nerdcast. Hello, Eli Stokels. Hello, Kristen. Ken Vogel. Hey. And Charlie Matessian. Hi, Kristen. All right, here we are again. Let's start with our first data point, which is going to be three this time. That's the number of donor calls made by Donald Trump when he was presented by the RNC with a list of 20 to call. Ken, tell us why he didn't call all 20. Well, there's been a, the RNC has had a tough time getting him to do what they want, essentially, to uh, embrace not just their advice, but sort of the traditional rules of campaigning that they are trying to get him to uh, incorporate into his what had been an insurgent sort of skeletal effort. And so we have a full story on this that popped this week, uh, looking at both that point, the, 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 the difficulty that they've had in getting him to engage in the fundraising uh, capacity, and then also generally his unwillingness to accept their advice about strategic direction, tone, including on some of these sensitive issues like the Orlando shooting, where he went off and arguably, uh, you know, got a lot of attention, but arguably had like a very bad several news cycles as a result of his uh, really bombastic uh, messaging on that. Uh, and then previously on his um, on his uh, veterans uh, charity, his, his uh, sort of the questions about whether he had donated as much as he said that he was going to donate to these veterans charities, he took a very like confrontational tack that uh, I'm sure the RNC would have preferred that he not taken. So our story looks at this in the context of a broader souring of the relationship between the Trump campaign and the RNC, because not just the RNC uh, who are feeling that he is not coming to the table earnestly in an effort to build a good rapport with them, but also the Trump campaign, who uh, the sources that we talked to suggested is not necessarily confident that the RNC is doing everything in their power to help him raise money and to help him uh, sort of pivot to the general So election. this is a super interesting point. It's the level of distrust between the two organizations, and it's two organizations that desperately need one another. And I think on the RNC's, uh, from their perspective, it's not just distrust, but disappointment. You know, you go back a couple of weeks, and the folks here at the RNC were thinking, okay, he's won, we can work with him, we can make this work. There was sort of a falling in line, and they said, oh, he'll listen, you know, and, and then 
it just doesn't really materialize, whether it's Katie Walsh going up to New York and giving Donald Trump the list, Reince's call list, and him saying, okay, great, and then getting bored after making three calls. Apparently, he's great in the room with the big donors, but when he's not getting that instant feedback, when it's on the phone, whatever it is, you know, very little follow-through from Donald Trump. That's frustrating. When they give him messaging advice, when they, the campaign asks for talking points and research on things, and they send it, and they say, okay, great, he's going to use this. And then he doesn't. And then he kind of goes off after Orlando, gets the messaging wrong. That's frustrating. It's a broader disappointment that there just has not been a pivot to the general election. But there fa- it felt pivot. like there was going to be a pivot. I mean, like we saw was. something last week or two weeks ago where he was using the teleprompter. It felt, you know, to us it felt boring. We've been watching him for so long. It lacked all of the, you know, adjective-filled sentences that his speeches normally have. But what you're hearing now is that, you know, it was his birthday this week. Donald Trump turned 70. And people are saying, you know, this is just a 70-year-old guy. He's not going to change. He can't change. We all know who he is. We've seen it for a year He's not going to change. And that's that's what's frustrating to, to the folks at the RNC because they look at the, all the national polls. He hasn't cracked 40% in a national poll yet. That's a problem. Ken. Yeah, and this is the, the sort of tactical manifestation of, of his difficulty in pivoting. I mean, he, uh, as you alluded to, Eli, he needs the RNC perhaps more than any other uh, recent Republican Party presidential nominee because he has just such... A, 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 a skeletal campaign staff and didn't really pay any attention or invest any money in building sort of a general election ready campaign during the primary when he was able to skate by on the strength of his billions of dollars of, of earned media and his big rallies. You know, we're seeing that he is not so able to control the news cycle uh, as he was in the in the primary and the general. And that really, you know, puts the uh, onus on him to sort of embrace some of these traditional blocking and tacking elements of politics that whatever you think about the RNC, they sort of know how this works. And they've invested in building an infrastructure that can is, is really like ready made for the presidential nominee to just slip into and use in a traditional way, and he's not doing it. No. And pretty clearly the RNC is incredibly sensitive about this right now, no? Of course they are. I mean, and it's it's understandable why they're so sensitive. Uh, I mean, there's more at stake than just the White House. I mean, I saw Paul Ryan last night at the Congressional Women's Softball Game, and he's sitting there smiling and shaking hands. And, you know, across the field, everyone's sitting there having a conversation with a Republican in the stands saying, man, poor guy, I hope he's having fun now because he's going to lose about 15 seats next year. That's where Republicans' heads are at right now. They see which direction this is going. And it's not the Senate they think is gone, and they're, they're looking at, Hillary Clinton White House, a Democratic Senate, and a House majority that is much smaller than it is now. I mean, that's what they see when they look into their crystal ball. It's increasingly clear just after the last month of Trump's performance on the stump or poor performance. And at the RNC, yeah, they've invested in this. Yeah, the Trump, they don't have to really overlap with the Trump campaign because there is no Trump campaign. So in the states, it's mostly RNC people sort of carrying, carrying the torch. But, you know, this all starts from Donald Trump. When Donald Trump steps on the stage at a rally and all the network TV cameras roll, everybody sees that. And that's the first domino. And then it's every other Republican office holder, Senate candidate, House candidate, getting chased around by reporters saying, do you agree with what he said today? That's the problem. And we got five more months of this. And I think you've also got the prospect all of a sudden of an unsettled convention again. Uh, 
I mean, are you? Is everybody at this table a hundred percent certain that Donald Trump will be the nominee? Are you willing to bet your house on it? I wouldn't. Uh, I think that question was resolved, and then after a couple weeks of the uh, Trump University judge and the Orlando response, all of a sudden the Never Trumpers are getting a second win. There's a lot more chatter. I, it, you know, you really There's a feel lot it. Of you really feel it. Someone is going to make a run at that convention. Uh, someone is going to see a lane in 2020 or 2024, or someone is going to try and make a last stand. And it's all because of the last couple weeks of uh, Trump's erratic behavior. And I think that colors this entire backdrop. Well, you know who's polling 11%? Who's that? Your boy, Gary Johnson? My boy, Gary Johnson. He's not my boy, Gary Johnson. Sorry, I, you, you like to talk about him. <laughs> <And> people got <laughs> super Maybe excited. Marijuana. People got know. super excited on uh, speaking of another sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, other non-Trump candidate or past candidate, people got really excited. Last night, I saw an FEC reform, an FEC form come in that I tweeted out from the Ted Cruz presidential campaign. He was redesignating 340 contributions from the from the primary election to the presidential general election. I just said, "Huh, isn't this interesting?" And people went nuts, like Cruz is about to come out. Now uh, his campaign pushed back on that, and they said, "No, we're redesignating these contributions so that they can be transferred to his 2018 Senate campaign." But just that initial burst of attention and enthusiasm around this just illustrates that there is this hunger. And you know, on the RNC. If I could even put this into broader perspective, you're right, Eli. There is there is there are some seriously uh, potentially grave consequences in this campaign down up and down the ballot for, about the RNC. But like this fits into the, the a broader context where the RNC is incredibly sensitive about uh, its essentially loss of power and money. Uh, in an era in which the super PACs and the big donors have been empowered by recent court decisions and regulatory inaction to spend their money outside of the party system. I've heard the argument made that the party, and I, I think it's actually an interesting, intriguing one, that the party was unable and the party establishment was unable to stop Trump this time, not because necessarily of any great trend in the you know, populist sentiment in the electorate, although that's certainly clearly the case, but that they had been diminished by the loss of power and money that had migrated to these super PACs and therefore were unable to mount a vigorous defense uh, of the party and sort of steer the nomination to the party's more favorite and sort of safe candidates. I don't know. Play that out a little bit. I mean, what would have been different? I mean, if the party had, if the party had sort of more power and control, then the, the field might not have been as fractured, that there wouldn't be like 17 candidates who would rush in and all be running and all have their own super PACs that allowed them to, you know, candidates who might not necessarily be able to hang in long enough to keep the field splintered were able to do so, allowing Trump to ride roughshod over all of them without using any of these sort of, you know, any of these sort of big money, uh, new development uh, vehicles like super PACs or 501c4s. But taking advantage of a, a different media landscape, taking advantage of trends in the electorate towards this sort of populist anti-establishment sentiment, and taking advantage of the splintered field that I think is a result of the weakened party. But you know what doesn't change is their ability to mes message, right? I mean, they, them not having, the RNC not having control over the money or not having power over, over the candidates does not change their ability to come out with a message that might be unifying for the Republican Party, which they haven't done. They've failed at that time and time again. And so while we've spent here in Washington and in the media industry weeks 
talking about the tactics that Donald Trump's campaign is using, talking about the Washington Post being blacklisted after we've been kicked out of events. I think it's important to remember that if you go back months now to the early part of the 2016 cycle, the Trump Organization was not the first organization to try to restrict access um, and to punish news organizations that were not providing coverage that that organization thought was fair. The first organization to do that was the Republican National Committee. And RNC tried to do that by restricting who got into debates. So it starts there. So what we're seeing with Trump is just building off of what the RNC started playing with doing in the fall. I think ultimately when Reince Priebus's tenure is over, whether he goes to K Street or whether he returns to Wisconsin, you know, when he looks back, uh, I think he's probably going to regret not surrounding himself with top tier communications talent. And it's really reflected uh, in, in the ways that you mentioned, but it's also uh, reflected in the way the RNC is perceived these days. I mean, think, in, think about the Obama era. You could also all have an alternate storyline coming out of the RNC, which is Reince Priebus presided over... Uh, an unprecedented era, the hollowing out of the Democratic Party at the local levels uh, under his tenure, and also growth in the House, building a House majority, a healthy, fulsome House majority, and also winning control of the Senate. Yet that is not what the story is. I think it's, I'm, I'm not in a mood to give the RNC any you know, credit or, or sympathy this morning, but I will say that you know, they had a lot of ammunition and, and the unifying message that will unify Republicans is about Hillary Clinton. They've got so much, you know, to use there. And the problem here, I mean, I agree with all of your points, but Donald Trump has, I mean, remember 10 months ago, they could have been talking about Hillary Clinton, and instead we were talking about a GOP unity pledge, a stupid gimmick that Reince came up with. You don't have to do a unity pledge, you know, if most of your presidential candidates are not sitting here being asked every day, will they support this like bombastic firecracker as the nominee who is totally dominating all media coverage of a primary. And so the distraction that he became, I mean, he was a distraction obviously from the message that Republicans, I think, went into the cycle maybe a year or two years ago thinking they were going to be emphasizing, and Trump changed all of that. It's not to say any of those points about the RNC and the missed opportunities aren't true, but I just think so much of this does come down to a year ago, Trump walking down the, you know, coming down the escalator, getting into this race, and everything just changed. And as far as Reince's legacy, let's not forget that it was Michael Steele, his predecessor, under whom the House was won back from uh, from Democratic control. Uh, that was a big deal, and you would think that he would have uh, had some burnishing of his legacy. Not at all the case. He sort of remembered as uh, the uh, his tenure, you know, for, for lack of a better word, is remember, it's kind of a failure. So I think if Trump blows up the, the Republican Party and loses in, in sort of a, you know, Goldwater-esque historic fashion, as some Republicans fear, that's, that's going to be it for Reince. All right. Data point number two. It's the number five. It's how much Clinton was leading Trump in Politico's first battleground state polling average. Now, Charlie, that's not as great of a lead as Clinton has in some national polls. What's the difference? Well, I think it's it's notable because the the battleground states uh, polling average that we've put together as part of our new battleground states project uh, takes a look not at the national polling average, uh, but at a smaller, more defined universe of eleven swing states, and that matters because I think we we all recognize, having spent a lot of time thinking about this election, uh, that it's it's really just a myth that we have a national presidential election that plays out across the American landscape. What really happens is we have a presidential 
election that plays out in a bunch of swing states that are highly competitive. And so we tried to reflect that in this polling average. And so naturally, you're going to see uh, the difference between the candidates a little bit tighter within this uh, 11 state uh, map, because these are the most competitive states, the ones that are most prone to swing. And they're the states that are going to see all the resources from the campaigns. 11 states. Walk us through it. Okay, so uh, I'm glad you asked that because uh, I've gotten a lot of feedback and, you know, I've seen uh, some stuff on Twitter, people wondering, you know, why is it 11 states? Uh, You know, there is no defined swing state map. Because people click on odd numbers? That is the theory. I know. I hear that in the newsroom all the time. It's always got to be an, uh, an odd number. But uh, I mean, you could, it's, it's, it's an arguable point. How big is the swing state map? You could argue eight, you could argue nine. I mean, I think most people would agree on uh, the on on eight, Colorado, Florida, Iowa, Nevada, New Hampshire, um, North Carolina, Ohio, uh, Virginia, where we add three. Uh, and these are more arguable. Uh, And the three we add are Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. And so I'll just focus on those three, why we added those. I mean, I think Pennsylvania and Michigan move in tandem, and they always have, or at least they have for the last couple decades. Neither of them has voted Republican for president since 1988. Uh, But there's a lot of the same uh, structural forces at work in both of those states. And the only reason we added them this year, because in a lot of ways, those two states are like, you know, Charlie Brown and Lucy always pulling the football. You know, every four years we hear, well, Michigan and Pennsylvania might be in play only to see the the Democrat run roughshod over the Republican. Uh, But I think this year could be different only because of the uh, Trump message and who he's trying to appeal to. Uh, I mean, you're talking about manufacturing industrial giants with uh, white working class populations uh, of note in Pennsylvania. It's, it's an older uh, population. For all those reasons, you know, trade is very resonant in these places. For all those reasons, if there is a path for Donald Trump, it is going to go through Michigan and Pennsylvania. That's why they're included. The last one is Wisconsin. I think Wisconsin, we would add a stronger case uh, prior to Trump's defeat in the primary there. I think Wisconsin is often thought of as a blue state uh, because of some of the you know progressive uh, historic progressive because stars Ma- that have Madison. come from yeah because of Madison you know it's Madison it's Dane County it's uh, Russ Feingold it's uh, La Follette it's like it's, it's, there's lots of reasons why Wisconsin is always thought of as a blue state but the truth is it's a very competitive state you know with a Republican legislature Scott Walker has been elected what three times there now uh, and the other thing to note is. Uh, that in 2000 and 2004, while Wisconsin hasn't gone Republican at the presidential level since 1984, in 2000 and 2004, that was a razor's edge state in the uh, when Bush ran. So that is a state that could very easily go Republican. I now, you know, I think it's a little bit dicier now because Trump. Uh, did so poorly among Republicans in the primary that it raises questions about whether he is the Republican who can carry Wisconsin. But either way, I think you can still make a pretty persuasive case right now that it's a swing state. Now, Pennsylvania is incredibly interesting to me, Eli. I mean, you've done some reporting looking um, inside the Trump campaign and their numbers for the general. And their whole strategy is Rust Belt or bust. Yeah, I mean, they have identified Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, and Wisconsin as their four states that, you know, were Obama states in 2012 that they think, they really think they can win. Um, You know, what they're not saying is they don't think they can win states like Nevada and Colorado for obvious reasons, with the Hispanic population being as large as it is in those states. But they do feel that those uh, sort of white, uh, blue-collar, Catholic Rust Belt voters in those states that Charlie was talking about are right in their wheelhouse. The question is whether there are enough 
of those voters in those states because most of the states, and I'm sitting in here with two PA guys, so I won't talk too long on this, but I mean, the, the you know, the swing votes in those places are like they are in a lot of states. They're in the suburban swing counties, the collar counties, as they're called. And that is not, uh, those are the Republican, those aren't Trump Republicans. Those are sort of more moderate, mainstream, pragmatic Republicans who may be frustrated and may find some appeal, you know, in Hillary Clinton, if she is looking stronger than him on national security, if she seems like a more credible commander in chief, et cetera, et cetera. And I think one of the things pollsters in Pennsylvania, in a lot of states right now, are cautious about, you know, Trump's pollster will sit there and say, well, we're doing better than Romney did, you know, right now. Well, right now is the operative word, because when they're t having these conversations, Hillary Clinton has yet to really bring home all of the Bernie voters. There was a poll, I think, the other day, and it was the Franklin poll up in Wisconsin, and it showed she was only getting about 67% of the Bernie voters. That's more than enough for her, but that number will probably only grow up once you see more publicly the sort of Bernie fall in line and say, okay, I'm with her, and, and the general election really uh, you know, coalesces. And the only other point you know, in these states, I mean, the effect of Bernie in a lot of states, I was talking to a Colorado congressman last night, uh, and he told me, he said, you know, the Bernie people are really passionate here, but this is going to end up being great for Democrats because they registered so many new voters, the Bernie campaign did, young voters. And the chances those people are going to vote Democratic at the end of the day. I think they did a lot more new voter registration in the primary than Donald Trump's folks did. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's a key point to consider when assessing their uh, comparison that they're doing better than Romney in those states. They got to do a lot better than Romney. Yeah. Romney got smoked. If you remember, I mean, Romney, uh, you had like folks like Karl Rove and some of the folks on the Romney campaign who up until that last like couple of weeks were saying, we're so close in Pennsylvania. Just give us another million dollars and we can get over the edge. No, they weren't so close at all. Um, and the, the areas where Trump is strong and the demographic that he is targeting, those white working class voters in maybe in somewhat swing areas, the Reagan Democrats in northeastern Pennsylvania. I mean, we have a, uh, a story on our website about a poll done by Jeff Rose firm, former Cruz campaign manager, uh, looked at seven, uh, six bellwether counties in the in the swing states. And one of them was Luzerne County, Pennsylvania, that's northeastern Pennsylvania, where Wilkes-Barre and Hazleton are located. White working class, you know, has a conservative but Democratic, but has swung and has have elected, you know, Republicans. Uh, and Trump is up 17 points there. Well, that would be huge, except for the trends that you're talking about, where uh, those areas are getting smaller. The population is getting smaller. The population is growing in those collar counties. Bernie registered a ton of people in those suburban areas that could be uh, key to Hillary running up huge margins there. And even if Trump does win Luzerne County by 17 points, that's probably not enough to win Pennsylvania. And one more just quick point on this. You know, we saw Donald Trump this week on the campaign trail. Not in Pennsylvania, not in Ohio, not in any real swing states, unless you count Georgia, where I do have a source telling me the Republicans are about to start polling because they think it could be close. But he's in Georgia, Texas, and North Carolina this week. Why? Because he's going places where he can raise money. He's not in full general election mode because he's starting at such a deficit on the fundraising front. He had to go to Texas to, you know, milk a bunch of oil guys and get all the, the oil money that he can. And so, you know, I mean, Texas probably a red state. You know, even Donald Trump can't lose Texas. But he's not in the general election states yet. And yes, I know we have a long way to go, but 
you know, and, and maybe it doesn't matter where you go these days because everything's on TV and, and who cares where the plane actually lands and where the rally is. Everybody sees the same thing. But I think it's going to matter. And I think he's sort of at a deficit. I think the, the focus the, the focus of the Trump campaign, uh, the states, how he's allocating his time these days, is the subject of a lot of chatter in, uh, among Republicans that I've talked to because you're right. He's going to places like Texas. He's going to places uh, that aren't necessarily the swing states that he needs to be in uh, where the, where the election is being fought. Contrast that to Hillary, who is laser focused right now on the swing states. Monday, she was in uh, Ohio. Tuesday, in Pennsylvania. Uh, Wednesday, in Virginia, in Hampton Roads. Uh, and so they're already laser focused on the swing states. Her time is being spent there. We see from the news today, uh, all over our site, Big, big buy in the swing states, which is combined with the priorities USA spending in the swing state universe. So already they are, uh, you know, they are several strides ahead in terms of the most competitive states uh, in the country. And to Eli's point about uh, what's driving Trump's schedule and what's driving Trump's uh, sort of, um, uh, you know, appearances, it is it is primarily fundraising. So much so that you're right, he's in Texas and he scheduled, he tried to schedule two rallies in Dallas and Houston, but he had reached out to the officials in those jurisdictions and at the venue so late that they were unable, at least you know, the latest that I've heard, were unable to actually schedule those rallies in the desired venues. So it shows that the, that the rallies at that point are sort of an afterthought. And even if they were, you know, the, the, the goal of the, of the trip in the first place, the fact that it is going to Texas, you know, uh, suggests that there is something else. Yeah, but how much of it is a head fake? I mean, Eli, we've talked about this. He's got to be going some places because he just wants to make Democrats spend some money. Yeah, I think that's what they say. California, when he was there campaigning up before the California primary that was meaningless, they said, well, you know, if he can get Hillary to fear that she might lose those 55 electoral votes, maybe she wastes some money and some time there. But honestly, I think that the schedule and the, where he's going is symptomatic of this larger problem that with his campaign. It is the big problem, and it's that he's in this bubble. The rallies are a bubble. There are 20,000 people, and they're cheering his every word, right? These are the true believers. He's preaching to the choir, and that's the problem. The primary's over, and he has this false confidence that he deeply feels based on having sort of improvised the first year of this campaign and it having gone very well. And he sits there now and it's part of why he resists the RNC. It's part of why he really is resistant to any advice and any conventional wisdom out there because he's got this confidence that I've done it my way and it's worked. And there is a complete failure within this bubble to recognize the fact that the general election is very different. When he was getting all that free media, when he was doing all these rallies, the metric we used to determine is he doing well or not was is he winning Republican primaries. And that is no longer the metric and it is politics 101 but he does not seem to comprehend at this point that this is a different game now. You have to go different places. You have to appeal to a much broader swath of the electorate. The message isn't changing. Nothing is changing. And I think that's the big issue. Right Charlie. Now. To me, it's symptomatic of an unfocused attention deficit campaign. I mean, is there anyone in the business of politics uh, who either gets paid for it or just sits home and reads a lot about it and knows a lot about it who thinks that Donald Trump can win California? No, not even the most conservative Republican in California thinks Donald Trump can win there. So, you know, Hillary, this idea of a head fake and getting her to spend money there is ludicrous when they talk about that. Same thing with New York, Maryland. I mean, come on. He hired a pollster just to help him in New York. It's it's ludicrous. And but what's doesn't have a field director in Ohio has a 
poster for New York. It's crazy. But, and, and, he, and I say this as someone who thinks Donald Trump can win. I see a path for him. I think he can win this election. But not if he's talking about, oh, you know, I'm going to spend some time in California, make them, you know, fake them out in California, and then I'm going to win New York, and I'm going to win Maryland. No, that's not going to happen. There is a path, but they need to zero in on it and get started on that path ASAP. It's time to bring Scott Bland into this conversation. Hello, Scott. Hello, Kristen. Editor of Campaign Pro. And he's walking into this room with a number, and it's $10 million, And that is at least as much as Hillary Clinton is spending right now on her first flurry of ads in eight swing states. Where is she spending? Yeah, she's starting off in uh, the states a, we just talked about. a map that looks very much like okay. the, uh, the ones we just t- discussed. It's Colorado, Florida, Iowa, Nevada, New Hampshire, North Carolina, Ohio and uh, our very own state of Virginia. Uh, and she's starting off with at least $10 million there. She's starting today, uh, Thursday, with uh, a couple of ads uh, of the, the traditional positive type about her work uh, ending human, or working to end human trafficking, working on children's health insurance, uh, kind of you know, the, the traditional uh, kickoff type ads. Uh, which are really interesting, for, uh, especially coming from a candidate who also, like Donald Trump, is underwater in favorables right now. More people view Hillary Clinton unfavorably than favorably starting this general election. It'll be interesting to see in those battleground state polls that we're watching so closely uh, whether those numbers start to move a little bit, even compared to how she does nationally, if people in the swing states who are seeing these TV ads of hers start to see her a little more favorably. This is not all that's being spent on Hillary Clinton's behalf, though, Ken. I mean, how much money are we seeing that's out there already? Yeah, Priorities USA, the main super PAC supporting Hillary Clinton, is up around $100 million already in commitments and actual buys in these swing states. Very uh, different approach that they're taking. They're the bad cop. They're uh, coming in and going after Trump in a very aggressive way. The effort here is to brand him like that like democrats were able and frankly priorities usa when it was a pro obama pack was able to brand mitt romney during the summer months when like traditionally i mean traditionally in sort of a pre-big money era there wasn't a lot of money being spent on tv then that's changing now and you see both the campaign and the super PAC spending heavily um you know we quote in our story on the on the clinton campaign's ad blitz a, uh, an operative, a Democratic operative who was ran Obama's operation in Florida or helped run it, saying, uh, you know, yeah, we're, we're already like in a good place. But uh, and it's also saying that it's very hard to kill anyone in July, but you can put them in a place where it's very difficult to come back. And the comparison that he made is it's like Steph Curry, the, the uh, Golden State Warriors star who Eli is a huge fan of shooting a three pointer when they're already up four points to put them up seven. Uh, it's not the nail in the coffin necessarily, but it makes it that much more difficult for Trump to be able to define himself. What's the comp on Trump? The comp in the sense of... How much money is being spent against Hillary Clinton? I mean, uh, not a lot. There's, there are outside groups that are spending. The difficulty there is with groups like American Crossroads or some of the Koch brothers groups that are trying to walk this line where they're saying... We're not necessarily pro-Trump. We're anti-Clinton. When, of course, that's de facto the same thing. And some of the donors who are still very uncomfortable with Trump are not super excited about spending money in that way. I think that's starting to change. You see sort of the line, the 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 the, um, the breakdown into different camps. The Kochs, who I mentioned, the Koch brothers, their their network has basically decided we're not going to do anything at all in the presidential race because we don't want to be against Hillary if that means helping Trump. 
Um, and, uh, and then you see other groups like American Crossroads, which is the Carl Rove group, and they are uh, sort of casting themselves as an anti-Clinton big money effort. So whether they're going to be, they haven't put money, they haven't put a whole lot of uh, points on the board as far as television advertising yet. They've done mostly digital, and I don't know, they haven't really impressed me that much in their fundraising. But that will be key to look at because it won't necessarily be the Trump campaign; it will be these outside groups whether they are going to spend big against Hillary. Yeah, and I think the the spending from the Trump super PAC so far has not uh, has has not really kicked into into gear. We've seen some digital, we've seen some national cable, which again, interesting given the fact that we're, you know, supposed to be focused on these battleground states right now and they're, you know, spending money to run ads in California, New York, and Texas essentially by putting them on, you know, these these national cable stations. Uh, I think that, you know, this advertising starting up right now, it uh, we're we're getting into one of these like immovable uh, uh, immovable object irresistible force situations here, right? Where Trump has been such a free media machine for the entire year now that he's been in the race. Uh, but you know everything that that everyone knows about political campaigns is basically you know that when TV ads work, uh, when they work best is when there's no counter against them. You know there no, nothing. TV ads are still kind of the, the the premier way that campaigns like to get their message out there. And when they work best is when the other side isn't doing TV advertising. And what you're seeing right now, you've got Clinton doing 10 million. You've got uh, priorities starting in all these states. They're starting in North Carolina today, another one of those swing states we mentioned, which, yeah, swing state, not not a tipping point state, I don't think we would say. You know, not not something that, that the election is going to hinge on what happens in North Carolina and the way it might in Colorado or Pennsylvania and and so you know if it's it's this is the the next great test of Trump's you know free media machine and and how that's worked for him well, they obviously recognize that there's that there that's not the approach to taking the general election i mean you see him making a full 180 on fundraising making a full 180 on supporting super PACs you mentioned that the Trump super PAC is is up with like a couple million bucks in digital and, and national cable, but the the Trump super PAC universe is as much of a hot mess uh, as the Trump campaign is. There's a bunch of super PACs and they are aggressively warring with each other and donors thus far have been pretty confused or reluctant to go in, even donors who are inclined to help Trump, like T. Boone Pickens, who had actually scheduled a retreat for one of these super PACs at his ranch, a donor retreat in Texas, uh, to try to raise some money for it, and got such pushback from folks in the Trump campaign who wanted a different super PAC to emerge as the anointed super PAC that he canceled it. So that's just leaving money on the table. And until they get themselves figured out, both inside the campaign and with the RNC on the joint fundraising and in the super PAC world, they're going to have a really tough time raising the money to be able to put the ads on the air to answer this onslaught. The curious thing to me about these Clinton ad purchases that we're reading about this morning is that Pennsylvania is not on there. Now, we just spent a lot of time talking about Pennsylvania. Back in 92, Bill Clinton took, what, more than 50 percent of the vote outside of Philly. Can the Clinton campaign now forfeit Pennsylvania and win, or are they counting on some late-stage surge around Bill Clinton campaigning in the state, Charlie? I think they, they see a lot of options and a lot of ways to get to 270. I think they have a, a head start in the electo- Electoral College to begin with. And I think if you take a look at the, the swing state uh, map that they poured money into with these ads, it tells you uh, a little something about 
um, you know, their definition of the swing state map, but it's also in some ways a dismissal of the Trump map. And it's a you know, sort of a uh, tacit message that we just don't believe or we're not seeing any signs that the path that you are talking about exists, meaning there's no path through Michigan and Pennsylvania. And I think the thinking in a place like Pennsylvania, and the reason why there's no money going in there is that ultimately, even if Donald Trump is really strong in the Appalachian part of the state, even if he's going to crush it in Western Pennsylvania, and even if he's going to crush it in Northeastern Pennsylvania, as Ken mentioned, uh, even if he's going to crush it in the Republican tea, even if he's competitive in the Republican suburbs, ultimately Trump will get destroyed in the city of Philadelphia. They'll carry it by 400 or 500,000. Uh, Hillary would carry it by four or 500,000 votes, and it will be too much. And I think that is sort of the message to take out of why there's no money in Pennsylvania. Yeah, a couple other things I would uh, add to this. There was a, a neat write-up, I thought, a, a story in Wired last week about Civis Analytics, one of the campaign tech firms that grew out of the Obama campaigns. Uh, a lot of a lot of Obama campaign vet, veterans working on that, and the, these were the folks working in Obama's cave, uh, the the analytics department there. And there there was a line in there about how uh, one point in the campaign where uh, the public polls in Michigan really started to tighten uh, over the summer, and that's you know where uh, Rom, Romney's father was the governor, and uh, you know there was a big win for Romney in the primaries, and he started to do really well. And the campaign based on uh, the numbers coming from the analytics department decided not to invest in Michigan, and it ended up being a good good decision. They easily won Michigan. It turned out they didn't need to invest there, and there was a, a quote from someone now working at Civis who was on the Obama campaign that that single decision paid for the entire analytics department, uh, wow. essentially. Like that, you know, that that one efficiency um, paid for the entire. And this is the same kind of model that, that the Clinton folks are using. And so I think there are a couple things that we can look at here. One is the potential that their internal analytics look differently than um, you know what we'd expect based on the public polling or kind of the historical election results. The other thing I would note is that uh, Philadelphia is one of the biggest media markets in the country in, in terms of the, the expense of advertising there. And it, it also uh, bleeds a lot into South Jersey, which is not a place that you know the Clinton folks are particularly interested in advertising right now, and you know I, th I think it's possible that those may have played into that decision for for now to leave Pennsylvania off that list. It's a really smart point because y it is a very inefficient way to buy TV. You know, to spend it in Philly because it's not just South Jersey; it's also Delaware, both of which That's are right. locked down blue states. There's nothing wrong with South Jersey. I mean, North Jersey is the real problem. There, there's a lot wrong with South <laughs> yeah. Jersey. All right. Well. <laughs> Philly media market bleeds into South Jersey. It also bleeds green, as Charlie and I know. Fist bump. Bang. Boom. <laughs> oh, we're going to end it there. Thank you, Eli. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. Fun time as always. Scott. Thank you. And Charlie. Thanks, Kristen. And thanks to the listeners.